Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I think I talked about this a day or so ago, but uh, Donald Trump has shifted $1.1 million of campaign contributions into his own businesses and thus into his own pocket. This is astonishing. I get these emails, as, as you know, I sent five bucks to his campaign back when, it, you know, when he first uh, it looked like he was going to get the Republican nomination. And I've been getting his fundraising ever since. You know, dear Fred Flintstone, uh, you know, we need some more money. And I know. I mean, you know, you can tell from reading them that he's targeting basically Fox News viewers. And the Fox News viewers are mostly over over 70. And so here you have a bunch of people who really can't afford to lose their money, donating money to the Trump campaign, thinking that they're helping him get reelected. And he's taken one point one million of this and put it into his own pocket. It's an amazing story. It's on Forbes of all places. I mean, Forbes, also the, 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 the group that that essentially outed Donald Trump pretending to be a billionaire and members of his cabinet as well. Wilbur Ross specifically. Maria Butina, or Butina, I've heard it pronounced both ways, the young Russian who went to, uh, George, I believe it was Georgetown. She got, it was someplace in Washington, D.C., got her master's degree. She's just pled guilty to basically using the NRA and other groups, helping facilitate funneling millions of dollars, presumably, from Russia into the NRA. We don't have all the details on this and trying to influence the presidential election that way. This from the New York Times, prosecutors have already been forced to back off the most salacious accusations that she used sex as spycraft, and they acknowledged in court filings this week that she genuinely wanted a graduate degree and not simply posing as a student to live in the U.S. They also dropped accusations of her being in contact with Russian intelligence agencies. It's looking more and more like this is just a, uh, you know, let's buy influence with the Republican Party and whether it's on the part of the government or some billionaire or whatnot, we're still figuring it out, right? We're still, we're still putting that together. Pedro Sanchez is the uh, prime minister of Spain. Uh, he's a socialist, not a democratic socialist, a socialist. They put together their draft uh, 2019 budget, and he wants to raise the minimum wage to uh, basically $1,100 a week. Jeez, that would be substantial, $1,100 a week. That's uh, $52,000 a year. That's what Spain is going to raise their minimum wage to. And he says a rich country can't have poor workers. Now, that said, this is a 22% increase in the, in the Spanish minimum wage. That said, his socialist party only controls 84 seats out of the 350 seats in the Spanish parliament. So this might be something that will get him lots of power and enthusiasm and all that kind of stuff or this might be something that is going to sink him. Meanwhile, in uh, Wisconsin, the Republicans are, are I, I don't know if uh, uh, Scott Walker has signed that legislation yet. The Republicans are trying to basically strip the incoming governor, uh, Tony Evers, of, 
of the power that Scott Walker has right now. And they're being supported in this with campaign donations from Microsoft, Dr. Pepper Snapple, J.P. Morgan Chase, Humana, and Walgreens. And uh, Walgreens, actually, in 2008, the state Supreme Court ruled in favor of Walgreens, in this case called Walgreens versus the city of Madison. What they had been doing is they had been phonying up their tax returns. They'd been uh, taking a very low valuation of their stores. Instead of being based on their actual store, they said, oh, there's a bunch of empty stores around us. They're not worth much. So we're going to discount the value of our store. And the the Republican-controlled Supreme Court of Wisconsin said, okay, cool. And this uh, dark store practice uh, is costing cities and towns in Wisconsin literally millions of tax dollars. It's led to budget shortfalls. It's caused families and uh, tax, an increase in taxes on families and small business in, in Wisconsin more than in neighboring Minnesota. It's called the Walgreens loophole. It's deeply unpopular. Uh, last year, a bipartisan group of state legislators began a push to change the law, but then somewhat mysteriously, the effort died. It turned out the Republican leaders, including Robert Voss, the Assembly Speaker, and Scott Fitzgerald, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, played a critical role in the demise of that measure. This is from the New York Times, the headline, The Corporate Donors Behind a Republican Power Grab by David Leonhardt. A few week, weeks later, uh, Walgreens donated to DeVos. A couple of weeks before Election Day, Walgreens gave money to Fitzgerald. Uh, Walgreens, by the way, did not donate to state-level Democrats this year. So basically what they're saying is we don't care if you undermine democracy as long as we get our tax break. Walgreens. So, you know, I don't, I don't use Walgreens. There's not one nearby. But if I did, I would be calling them up and saying, hey, here's my name. Here's the business I do with you. And uh, I'm going to take it someplace else. If you, if you can't call me back in the next 24 hours and tell me that you guys have changed your corporate policy in Wisconsin with regard to the, uh, to the Republicans, it's pretty grim stuff. Tom Harmon here with you. And on the line with us, our old buddy, Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator Sanders, welcome back. Hey, Tom, how are you? I'm great. I'm so glad to hear from you. I understand you're doing great stuff with regard to Yemen or trying to here. In a little while, we should be able to get to the floor and offer a what's called a motion to proceed and have a debate on getting the United States of America out of the Saudi-led disastrous war in Yemen. I am cautiously optimistic that we have the votes to win this. And that would be, Tom, the first time that the War Powers Act, which was passed in 1973, has been effectively used to end U.S. participation in a war. So it's a pretty big wow. deal. That's a huge deal. For people who are not familiar with the situation in Yemen or the depth and breadth of the situation in Yemen, can you recap it for us, Bernie? I, I sure can. And, it's, you know, it, and it speaks to what media considers to be important or not that we have not learned more about the terrible humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And what we're talking about now is that three years ago, Saudi Arabia intervened in a long-term ongoing civil war in Yemen. The result of that intervention has been the complete disruption of the economy in Yemen. Over the last three years, 85,000 children have starved to death and millions more face imminent starvation. We are looking at a generation, 48% of the children there are malnourished. Many of them are looking at stunted growth intellectually and physically. 10,000 outbreaks of cholera every single week because Saudi Arabia has bombed the water infrastructure in Yemen so people can't access clean water. Uh, half of the hospitals no longer function. So according to a number of leading experts, we are looking right now at the worst humanitarian disaster on earth today. And it will only get worse if we do not end that war and provide the humanitarian help that that country needs. So that is the major focus on what we are trying to do right now, get the United States out of this Saudi Arabia-led war. Second of all, I think it is time that we made very clear to the despotic regime in Saudi Arabia led by Mohammed bin Salman that we are not going to follow their adventuristic military policy. Uh, Saudi Arabia, as I hope many listeners know, is an authoritarian government. It does not tolerate dissent of any kind. We saw the level 
incredible level of its brutality in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the dissident Saudi journalist who was murdered in cold blood in the consulate, the Saudi consulate in Turkey, and then had his body dismembered. And I think it is the time is long overdue for the United States to say, sorry, this is not the kind of country whose leadership we are going to follow in a terrible, terrible war. And last, but certainly not least, is, as you know, Tom, I know you've talked about this a whole lot, the Constitution is very clear that it is the Congress of the United States, not the President, who determines whether or not we go to war. And for a very long time on the Democratic and Republican presidents, the Congress has abdicated that responsibility. So today is an important step forward in Congress reclaiming that constitutional responsibility, and I hope we can win this. And I hope this begins the process of Congress making the enormously important decisions of when and how and where our young men and women lives uh, put on the line in terms of war. Yeah. Senator, finally, uh, last question here, unless you wanted to go off into any other areas, but it seems from the media reporting that I've been following that the Saudis, when Trump got elected president, the Saudis sat down and said, how do we get inside this administration? And they identified Jared Kushner as the weak spot because he didn't know anything about Saudi Arabia. He was uninformed broadly on Middle Eastern issues with the possible exception of his internal Israeli politics. And they put together a PowerPoint presentation, essentially a slideshow, and here's how we get inside Jared Kushner's head. The crown prince reached out to him. They started massaging him, essentially. And that led to Donald Trump making his first overseas visit to Saudi Arabia, and that led to this administration doubling down on their support of Mohammed bin Salman in the war with Yemen. Can you speak to that? Is that an accurate depiction of what's going on? And if so, what do we do about it? I think that is an accurate statement. I think I would simply add to that a couple of other factors. Number one, we have a president who has a fondness for authoritarian regimes, whether in Saudi Arabia, whether in Russia, or even in North Korea. Number two, Saudi Arabia is, by definition, a big time into fossil fuel. And we have a president here who has ignored all of the scientific evidence regarding climate change and the incredible damage it is already doing to our planet, and I think feels an affinity with a regime that produces a whole lot of oil, as does Russia, of course. I would throw those factors in as well. Yeah, yeah. And let's not forget the Kushner family going around the Middle East with hat in hand looking for money for their building on Fifth Avenue. Exactly. You could throw that one into it. But anyhow, we'll keep you abreast of what's happening. But uh, today, I hope we can certainly get a motion to proceed and hopefully win this vote, which will be a very big deal. And people can call their senators at 202-225-3121 to be in support of your efforts. That would be great. Uh, That would be much appreciated. Okay, uh, 202-225-3121. Senator Sanders, thanks so much for dropping by today. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that will really stand out, right? I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady has been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping in time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. So let's check in with Bob Nay and find out what's going on in the world today. This uh, talk media news report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. Uh, Bob, uh, former Congressman Bob Nay, author of Sideswiped. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hi, Tom. Well, there's a lot going on in the world today and all the way around, and, of course, U.S. Congress and Donald Trump, Okay. it or not. But the first thing is the uh, push against Saudi Arabia, 
of course, in the Senate, which is extremely bipartisan. The bill couldn't even get a uh, you know affirmative vote last time, but it's Bernie Sanders and Senator Lee of Utah. You can't beat that combination. Yeah, Mike Lee is uh, Mr. Tea Party. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Lee obviously is to the right of the right of the right. Yeah. And it's got the momentum on top of it. Then you have Corker, who's going out, of course, from Tennessee, the Republican chairman of foreign relations, but still Lindsey Graham and many, many, uh, well, unanimous on the Democratic side. And uh, they are following up with uh, sense of the Senate. And that would be that, of course, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, or he's known as Mr. Bonesaw in Saudi Arabia behind his back. Mm -hmm. uh, he has conspired and been complicit and planned and did the murder of Khashoggi is what it's basically going to say. Now, it's interesting. I don't know if you've talked yet about Speaker Ryan put an amendment into the farm bill. Now, if you want to put an amendment to the farm bill that, that the uh, funding of Saudi Arabia with the proxy war in Yemen, we're funding them against Iran, in a proxy war in the country of Yemen. If you want to put it in the farm bill, you don't want to mess the farm bill up. Understood. As I understand it, he got an amendment in, the Speaker did, that this can't be placed anywhere in the House. That's right. Yeah, and, anyway. and basically, you, if you want to have food stamps and if you want to have farmers uh, be subsidized, particularly the big uh, giant agricultural companies that are getting the majority of these subsidies and thus you know, kicking that back in the form of political donations uh, to, to Republicans and Democrats, if you want to have that, uh, you're going you're gonna to accept this rider that says that you can't censure Correct. Saudi Arabia, essentially. You can't stop Period. money going to Saudi Arabia. That blew my mind when I read that this morning in the New York Times. Well, it did mine, too, because let's make a rationale on this. Did he do it to support President Trump? I don't think so. Yeah. So he did it because of the power and influence of the Saudis yep. amongst uh, his members on the Republican side, uh, because I think the Democratic side is pretty well on board. The only ones against this right now are President Trump. But with the Speaker stepping in, it shocked me. He didn't step in to please President Trump. Mm-hmm. I would not think so. Yeah, no, I, I agree. No. I, I, I think this does speak to the power of the Saudis, which should make us all really freaked out, frankly. Well, it should. Uh, you know, I mean, what does it take to finally stand up to the Saudis? Now, again, you've got to give the Senate a lot of credit. I think also it was not a waste of time for the Senate. Some people say it's not going to go through or Trump could veto it. It's not a waste of time because Speaker Pelosi will be back that measure should pass easily once again, and then it will pass, it will pass the House hmm. with uh, Speaker Pelosi and some Republicans that actually do want a chance to, uh, to support it. So that, that will come back around. I think we can be guaranteed of that. Hmm. Okay. So what else? And is then that? on another note, they did pass the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the sexual harassment uh, uh, reformation bill from the original Congressional Accountability Bill. And uh, I've yet to, I, I actually started to skim through right before your show through the bill, but it looks like there's some improve, uh, improvements. The House is, uh, has a stricter idea of it. The Senate's more lenient, but you know what? The House can go along with this next week, and then the House can pass its own provisions that will make it a little bit, um, you know, maybe close the loopholes for the House side. Yeah, so uh, th this is basically Congress saying, we're not going to tolerate sexual harassment any longer here in Congress by members, by staffers, you know, et cetera. And have the House, uh, the taxpayers pay for it. Right. I mean, yeah, that's right. They've, they've, been, they've been hiding and burying and adjudicating this stuff in secret, hadn't they? I'd forgotten that. Well, sure. Well, you know, look, uh, the original Accountability Act was passed. It was brought into House administration under Bill Thomas. You know, that's who, you know, uh, looks at the accountability aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Then brought in when I was chairman. Now, I, I can tell you that we didn't have cases where we paid where a, a member committed a rape or, or, you know, had some sexual assault. I, you know, I, we didn't do that. But we did have cases, and I think it was good at the time, uh, some racial cases, some uh, cases against people of the LGBT community. We had a lot of different cases where, you know, we stepped in. Mm. But as it, time went on and they were, you know, paying for basically admitted rape uh, by the taxpayers, you can't do that. So the act went way, way out of control. And now they're bringing it back, I think, in line, Tom. Mm. Fascinating. Good stuff. Yeah. And the other thing is Cohen. Judge Napolitano of Fox News has said that the prosecutors are solid, that the president has committed a felony. They would not have said this in court. That's, that's a news story when Judge Napolitano Do you, I, 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 you were a Republican congressman. You're very familiar with Fox News and the relationship between Fox and the, and the, and the sure. Republican Party. Do you think Fox is on the verge of turning against Trump? 
I, you know, it's very fascinating. Shepard Smith, of course, you know, was the first to uh, be, become, quote, very candid on the Trump administration. Right. And people kind of went at him. But you're starting to see pieces. Ann Coulter made a comment the other day. And hmm. now Judge Napolitano. So I think that what they're doing is maybe not so much as turning as protecting their own self. Yeah, they're protecting their brand. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's a certain point where you just can't deny reality anymore. Correct. Protecting yeah. themselves. And they're, and they're reaching that. And which is what basically, uh, you know, happened with Barry Goldwater with Richard Nixon. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Bob Nay with Talk Media News, uh, the author of the book Sideswiped. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Great Thank talking you. with you. We'll be back. We're going to continue with the news of the day. And boy, is there a pile of it right after. Oh, and Scott Ritter's going to drop by. Check this out right after this. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hi, for our book club today, we're reading from Bernie Sanders' new book, Where We Go From Here, Two Years in the Resistance. This is from the introduction. During my campaign for president in 2016, I stated over and over again that the future of our country was dependent upon our willingness to make a political revolution. I stressed that real change never occurs from the top down. It always happens from the bottom up. No real change in American history, not the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, the environmental movement, or any other movement for social justice has ever succeeded without grassroots activism, without millions of people engaged in the struggle for justice. That's what I said when I ran for president. That's what I believe now. That's what I've been working to accomplish over the last several years. At a time of massive and growing income and wealth inequality, as our nation moves closer and closer to an oligarchic form of society, we need an unprecedented grassroots political movement to stand up to the greed of the billionaire class and the politicians they own. And the good news is we're making progress. People in every region of our country are standing up and fighting back against the most dishonest and reactionary president in the history of the republic. In state after state, they're also taking on establishment politicians who are more concerned about protecting their wealthy campaign contributors than they are with the needs of the middle class and the working people they're supposed to represent. We're making progress when millions of people in every state in the country take to the streets for the Women's March in opposition to Trump's reactionary agenda. We're making progress when an unprecedented grassroots movement elects a young African-American as mayor of Birmingham, Alabama. We're making progress when tens of thousands of Americans turn out at rallies and town hall meetings to successfully oppose the Republican effort to throw 32 million people off health insurance. We're making progress when governors and local officials announce in response to student demands tuition-free public colleges and universities. We're making progress when over the past two years, hundreds of first-time candidates of every conceivable background run for school boards, city council, state legislature, and Congress, and many of them win. The good news is that the American people are far more united than the media would like us to believe. They get it. They know that over the past 40 years, despite a huge increase in worker productivity, the middle class has continued to shrink while the very rich have become very much richer. They know that for the first time in the modern history of the United States, our kids will likely have a lower living standard than us. The bad news is that instead of going forward together, demagogues like Trump win elections by dividing us. The bad news is that too many of us are getting angry at the wrong people. It was not an immigrant picking strawberries at $8 an hour who destroyed the economy in 2008. It was the greed and illegal behavior of Wall Street. It was not transgender people who threw millions of workers out on the street as factories were shut down all across the country. It was profitable multinational corporations in search of cheap labor abroad. Our job for the sake of our kids and grandchildren is to bring our people together around a progressive agenda. Are the majority of people in our country deeply concerned about the grotesque level of income and wealth inequality that we are experiencing? You bet they are. Do they believe that our campaign finance system is corrupt and enables the rich to buy elections? Overwhelmingly, they do. Do they want to raise the minimum wage to a living wage and provide pay equity for women? Yes, they do. Do they think that the very rich and large corporations should pay more in taxes so that all of our kids can have free tuition at public universities and colleges? Yep. Do they believe that the United States should join every other major country and guarantee health care as a right? Yes, again. Do they believe climate change is real? you got to be kidding. Are they tired of the United States of America, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, falling apart at the seams with roads, bridges, water systems, wastewater plants, airports, rails, levees, and dams either failing or at risk of failing? Who isn't? 
Further, a majority of the American people want comprehensive immigration reform and a criminal justice system that is based on justice, not racism or mass incarceration. Today, what the American people want is not what they're getting. In fact, under Republican leadership in the House, Senate, and White House, they are getting exactly the opposite of what they want. The American people want a government that represents all of us. Instead, they're getting a government that represents the interests and extremist ideology of wealthy campaign contributors. They want environmental policies that combat climate change and pollution and that will allow our kids to live on a healthy and habitable planet. Instead, they're getting executive orders and legislation that push more fossil fuel production, more greenhouse gas emissions, and more pollution. They want a foreign policy that prioritizes peacemaking. Instead, they're getting increased military spending and growing hostility to our long-term democratic allies. They want a nation in which all people are treated with dignity and respect and where we continue our decades-long struggle to end discrimination based on race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, and nation of origin. Instead, they have a president who seeks to win political support by appealing to those very deep-seated prejudices. During the last several years, I've worked hard in Washington, but I've also traveled to 32 states in every region of our country. I've seen the beauty, strength, and courage of our people. I've also seen fear and despair. I've talked to people with life-threatening illnesses in West Virginia who worry about what will happen to them or their loved ones if they lose the health insurance that keeps them alive. I've talked to young immigrants, dreamers in Arizona, who are frightened to death about losing their legal status and being deported from the only country they have ever known. I've talked to a single mom, a young single mom in Nevada, worried about how she can raise her daughter on $10.45 an hour. I've talked to retirees and older workers in Kansas who are outraged that as a result of congressional legislation, they could lose up to 60% of the pensions they paid into and were promised as deferred compensation for a lifetime of hard work. Bernie Sanders, where we go from here. As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month, but odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for, for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth generation family owned company with over a hundred years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand cut by master butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com Enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT, in the search bar and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. Interesting piece over uh, at uh, Salon by Lucian Truscott. Uh, Commentary, an op-ed piece, uh, forget Cohen. Here's why Maria Butina's plea is the worst news ever for Trump. And he's positing that uh, Maria Butina would not be uh, essentially turning state's evidence on, on uh, Trump or on the GOP and, and essentially on Russia if she didn't have the permission of the Russian government that, that, you know, she's going to be deported when she's all done and she doesn't want to go home, you know, to a prison. And so she has the permission of the Russian government to spill the beans. And that what that means is that the Russian, uh, that the Putin administration has just decided to, to, to cut Trump loose. Um, and therefore, Trump better worry. He better worry big time. Now, I think that that happened long before this. I think that happened a week or two ago when uh, the uh, Russian, I believe it was the Russian ambassador, confirmed that Donald Trump was negotiating Trump Tower right up until the middle of the summer of 2016 when he was running for president against Hillary Clinton. That, to me, was the point at which they said, OK, Donald, you're on your own. Good luck with this. So we'll see where this goes. I, I just find the whole thing absolutely fascinating to watch. And it, it's turning into you know, high tragedy. But right now on the line with us is David Priest. He is a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University. He served in the U.S. government during the Bill Clinton and George W. Bush administrations at the CIA and the State Department. And he's the author of a new book, How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unable or Unfit Chief Executives. His website, David Priest, P-R-I-E-S-S dot com. And you can tweet him at David Priest. David, welcome to the program. 
Good to be here. Good to talk to you, Tom. So what does history tell us about how to get rid of a president? Well, there are a lot of ways. We seem to be focused a lot on the I word. Impeachment is coming up more than anything else. But there are a whole bunch of ways that we have disempowered and removed presidents or tried to across more than 200 years of history. And we shouldn't just focus on one channel. It depends on why we think the president should be removed. And it depends on what the political landscape looks like. Well, my recollection is that, you know, outside of assassination, which obviously nobody is recommending, but I think right. probably more presidents have been removed by assassination than any other means. Andrew Johnson, they impeached him in the House, but they didn't convict him in the Senate. Bill Clinton, they impeached him in the House, didn't convict him in the Senate. Richard Nixon, they drew up articles of impeachment against him in the House. Right. And in response to that, he resigned rather than go through the impeachment process because the yep. uh, handwriting was on the wall. What yep. am I missing here? What else is there outside of using impeachment either as a cudgel, as they did against Nixon, right. or as an actual weapon, as was used against Johnson and Clinton? Sure. In the book, I do write Richard Nixon was a president removed by impeachment. We know right. that it didn't get to a trial, but there's no doubt he resigned because he saw the impeachment writing was on the wall. So that is a successful removal. But I start much earlier, Tom. I look at what the founders' design was, and they had a very easy method for removing a president that had lost the favor of the people, and that's the next election. Uh, I end the book with it, but really the main way to get rid of a president who still wants to be in office is they run again, and we say, sorry, we're not that into you anymore. And this has happened a lot in American history. We've had 10 presidents who wanted to run again, who made it to the ballot, who were their party's nominee, and then somehow didn't make it anyway. But these people in modern experience. Millard Fillmore, James Buchanan, that kind of thing? Yeah. Is that Yeah, you have to go back to nineteen ninety two for the most recent sitting president who was removed by the electorate. George H. W. Bush. W. Bush. Right. But before that, it used to happen a whole lot back in the nineteenth century. So that's one method, and that's the mm. one that the founders clearly preferred. And that's why they settled on a four year term instead of a nine or a twelve year term so right. that people could regularly turn out the president if they didn't want him. But short of that, you can have the party decide not to renominate the sitting president. Well, that's what happened to Lyndon Johnson. can be rejected by the party, like Lyndon Johnson in 68, effectively. Again, this used to happen a whole lot more often than it does in modern times. But there's no reason that that can't happen again. We're already hearing the inklings of primary runs against Donald Trump, given his unpopularity within some circles of current and especially former Republicans. Mm. Of course, you do have assassination, which we don't recommend. You can wait for the president to die. We've had four presidents die in office. And frankly, it was the only way that Republicans could get FDR out of office because he kept getting reelected. Right. But then you do settle in on some of the more nefarious means. I talk in the book about two things that are not quite removal, but they certainly look like it. One is removal in place. When the president still has the title, still sits in the Oval Office, but you have restricted their powers so much that they are effectively president in name only. And again, you mentioned Andrew Johnson being impeached but not removed, but the Congress boxed him in so much that he was effectively not a president in the way we tend to think of the modern president. So I, I, I know that Congress you know, cut the size of the Supreme Court from 10 down to, as I recall, seven or maybe six. Yeah when Andrew Johnson became president, specifically because he had been a slaveholder. In fact, his first slave was a woman named Dolly that he bought when she was 14. He bragged that she asked him to buy her because she thought he was handsome. He had three children by her. She followed him to the White House. I mean, you know, he was just an unrepentant slave owner. And the radical Republicans, the abolitionists, did not want him to have the power to put somebody on the Supreme Court. I don't know about any other things that Congress did to box him in. What were they? Yeah, they did one thing, which was later ruled unconstitutional, but it worked at the time. They passed something called the Tenure of Office Act, by which the president could not remove his own cabinet secretary. They had to get Senate approval to do it. So he was stuck with Lincoln's cabinet people, Lincoln being a Republican. Right. He was a Democrat. That's right. And he had some people within his administration blocking him. Some of the same things we saw this summer, Tom, going on in the Trump administration with officers within the president's government not executing his orders or taking papers off his desk. These are the kinds of things that Ulysses Grant and Edwin Stanton were doing against President Johnson. He tried to remove Stanton and he couldn't. The Tenure of Office Act said you can't. Again, later ruled unconstitutional, 
but Congress enforced it, and that was actually the trigger for his impeachment. So there are many things so, that opponents can do. So, David Priest, we see right now this op-ed in the Washington Post, I believe it was, that was published, I think it was the Times, actually, published, what, about a year ago? Maybe a little less. It's hard to tell. Time seems, seems to... Ex- like, it seems like a year ago, but it was just a few months ago. Yeah, the you're right. one in New York Times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, time seems to be totally fluid in Trump world. <laughs> or Trumpistan, as one of my callers calls it. And in fact, there's a lot of speculation that the guy who wrote that was actually Nick Ayers, you know, Mike Pence's uh, chief of staff, who's retiring and going back to Georgia. But in any case, he came right out and said, you know, we steal papers off his desk so he doesn't see right. them. I mean, you know, so this is what U.S. Grant was doing. It's the kind of thing Ulysses Grant was doing, and frankly, it's the kind of thing that several of Nixon's advisors were doing, not just during Watergate, but from the beginning. His chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, was receiving orders from Nixon and not passing them on to the cabinet secretaries because he thought the president really shouldn't be doing this. Now, on the one hand, that's disturbing because that's taking on the presidential prerogatives when you are not the elected official. On the other hand, some of the things Nixon was saying were clearly abhorrent, like, let's bomb Damascus, the capital of Syria, at a time when we were not at war with Syria. Clearly, somebody stepped in and said, this is not the right thing to do. So there's a tension there, but it is a way of removing the president in place, that is, not letting them exercise the full powers and duties of the office, even though they're entitled to. Fascinating. And then you said there was one other way of removing that you mentioned. the The other nefarious way that I explored is what happens when there's a candidate so eminently qualified, so capable, that the opposition looks at them and says, if they get into office, we're going to have a hard time boxing them in politically. How about we preemptively remove them? Well, that's we what Nixon did tricks. with Ed Muskie. He used dirty tricks to not let them get into office in the first place. Yep. I look at Henry Clay from the 1800s, one of the best qualified people we've ever had, the best president we've never had, perhaps Hillary Clinton yep. in 2016 from Russian information warfare keeping her out of office, in a sense, removing her before she can even take the office. That's a dirty trick, and it is a gray area between good politics and dirty tricks, but it is effectively a way of removing a president before they ever take the office in the first place. That's absolutely remarkable. David Priest is a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason University, served in the Clinton and Bush administrations at the CIA and State Department. He's got a new book out. It's called How to Get Rid of a President, a History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. His website, David Priest, P-R-I-E-S-S, and uh, .com, and you can tweet him at David Priest. David, thank you for dropping by today. You bet, Tom. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Great talking with you. It's very informative. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Fair and only slightly unbalanced. Tom Hartman here with you, speaking the truth to the multinational corporations. Really around that you didn't know about. Tom Hartman here with you. Boy, a lot going on in the news and in the world today. Uh, Maria Butina, her boyfriend, has claimed that he set up a Trump-Russia NRA conduit for campaign funds. And it uh, looks like uh, he's probably going to be pleading guilty here, too. He's uh, apparently working with the pr- prosecutor. She pled guilty this morning. Um, you know, we don't know where that's going to go and, uh, you know, what that's going to turn into. Uh, let's see here. There's another story that I wanted to just put on your, uh, on your radar screen. It's from the New York Times, and this is from December 7th. What is that, last Friday or Saturday, something like that. And it's about how we have gone from, in early 2017, now consider how short a period of time this is, almost two years ago. At that point in time, 4% of the robocalls and the spam calls that we were all getting on our phones, 4% were from people who were running outright fraudulent scams. They were calling, trying to get you to give them their credit card to say that you're, you know, even the ones that said, hey, you've been approved for a new credit card. They really weren't going to give you a new credit card. They just wanted enough of your personal information that they could steal your identity. It was 4% were these fraudulent phone calls, the, the ones that are designed to steal from you. One year later, in early 2018, it was 30% of all calls. 
Sean and I have been talking. We, we both get these things, and they, they you know, I, neither one of us answer our phone if our, if our phone doesn't recognize it. We just wait for the voicemail, and if it's somebody that we know that we just didn't have their phone number in our contact list, then we call them back, right? It's real simple. But some of these guys and women, some of these people actually leave messages, and the messages are just bizarre. They're just, I mean, it's, it's, but in any case, the principal audience that these people are trying to get, and by the way, now that hospitals can sell your phone number, I'm convinced, I, you know, when we moved to Portland here, one of the first things we did was, you know, find a doctor, and it was through a local hospital chain. It was the only way we could find a doctor was to go, it was to enter one of these large practices that's associated with a hospital. And you sign the HIPAA notice and it says, you know, we can sell your information. And literally a week after I did that, suddenly I started getting these calls. I mean, it just exploded. I'm convinced that's where they got it. And what they're looking for are people who are over 50, ideally over 60, which I was when I moved here. Just, you know, a heads up. It's more than an annoyance, writes the New York Times. The FTC and its tracking of reports consumers from consumers found that people who fell for the frauds lost an average of $700 each last year, with a total loss in the United States in 2018 of $332 million. You know, we used to get these things in the mail, you know, the, 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 from, from the Nigerians. Then it went to the fax machines. I remember when fax machines start, you know, became a big thing in the early 70s, and I was getting this scam stuff on my fax machine. And, and now it's coming over your, your phone, and now it's even coming over your cell phone. And they spoof the number. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I'm constantly getting calls from, you know, 503 and then the first three digits of my cell phone number, right? 503 and those, those first six digits. And, and so you assume that it's somebody who's close to you. I mean, like physically close to you. It must be one of my neighbors or something. And the first time I answered it, it was a scam call like that. I haven't answered one since then. But beware. Be very careful. We'll be back. Mary in Tucson, Arizona. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? Hi. I got awakened this morning at 6.15 a.m. My mom has a landline because uh, she has some monitors hooked up. And the landline told me out loud that Mary Doherty was calling. That would be your mother. Mary Doherty. Oh, that's you? It was was on my mother's phone. So they spoofed your your phone number. Yes, and when I picked up to see who the heck it was, it said uh, Microsoft was calling. That's one of the big scams. You've got a problem. You've got a virus on your software. You need to. Uh, you've got to buy our antivirus software, or let us walk you through it on the on the online. You know, take your browser and go to this website, and boom, suddenly you're infected. Yeah. You know. So. Well, I don't do any of that because I do Geek Squad. Yeah. But yeah. it just. You know, the fact that it announced that I was the one calling the landline. Yeah. Yeah, that should be a clue. Um, yeah. Yeah, this is apropos of our earlier, my the, the story that I shared with you earlier about the spam calls. How many spam calls are you getting a day, Mary? About 20. Seriously? Wow. Between my cell phone and the landline, I get about 20. Wow. And is your mom uh, elderly? Does she get more as a consequence 92. of that? Ninety-two. She's ninety-two, and so she's getting a lot of these spam calls. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, that's remarkable. And I just tell her if if she doesn't recognize the name, or because her landline announces who's calling. Mm-hmm. If she doesn't recognize it, don't answer it. So, so, and but this on this one. Her landline announced that her daughter, that would be you, was calling, and you were, uh-huh. you, and you happened to be there, so you answered the phone to see what the heck is going on. I now live with mom, so yeah. that we, you know, because she's ninety-two, she can't really live on her, her own anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very that's very good of you, Mary. If it's a human being, I just say uh, the next call is going directly to the attorney general's office. Yeah. There you go. I'm not. It doesn't I'm, stop anything, but. Yeah. Um, thank you, Mary. Thanks for the call. And, and yeah, this is this is happening. This is what happens when, you know, this has exploded, right? We went from 4% to, four, to over 30% in one year. 
The one year that a grifter is our president, the grifters suddenly start calling us all the time. I wonder if there's a cause-effect relationship there. When do you want to spot that burglar? When he's casing your home or after he's in? Ask John, whose blink camera alerted him a burglar's trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, video clips from Blink were sent to police to help convict the crooks. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two AA batteries that last up to two years. And if you're traveling over the holidays, Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check on your pets from anywhere using the Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable, and Blink works with Alexa. Blink camera systems make great holiday gifts, and they're a brilliant way to monitor your holiday package deliveries. Visit BlinkProtect.com holiday. That's BlinkProtect.com holiday. Visit BlinkProtect.com holiday. Once again, BlinkProtect.com holiday. Blink is an Amazon company. Tom Hartman here with you, and on the line with us is Scott Ritter, the former U.N. weapons inspector and author. His latest book is titled Deal Breaker, Donald Trump and the Unmaking of the Iran Nuclear Deal. Uh, you can tweet him at RealScottRitter, R-I-T-T-E-R. Scott, welcome back to the program. Jeez, it's been years since we've talked. You used to be a, almost a regular on this program back when uh, the Iraq war was uh, in its early phases. Well, it's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. It's great having you with us. Um, so tell us about the Iran deal, the, the, you know, what it was, how it was put together, and why it's such a big deal that Donald Trump walked away from it. And for that matter, why Donald Trump walked away from it? Well, the Iran deal was, you know, decades in the making. Um, the United States has had an Iran problem since 1979 when the Iranian revolution, uh, the Islamic revolution, overthrew the, the Shah. Uh, and then... Subsequently, um, uh, over, over 50 Americans were taken hostage for 444 days. Uh, the United States has never forgiven Iran for that act, uh, nor have we forgiven Iran for uh, the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut. Um, so there's been animosity between the United States and Iran for, for a long time now. Um, the, you know, so when you have this animosity, when, when you have a nation like Iran suddenly decide that uh, they want to pursue a you know civilian nuclear energy program inclusive of the totality of the nuclear fuel cycle. Uh, the United States steps in and says, "No, this is this is a policy that dates back to Ronald Reagan. It was continued by George Herbert Walker Bush and uh, also you know Bill Clinton. So this you know and, and then we can go on and on to George mm. W. Bush, Barack Obama. So this isn't just a Donald Trump." issue. This is a United States issue. One of the problems is that Iran is a signatory to the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty, and they allow inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency to come into uh, Iran and oversee uh, their legitimate nuclear program. Uh, when Iran was denied access to the technology needed to uh, develop the fuel cycle, which they're permitted to do under the Non-Proliferation Treaty, um, they chose to go to the black market and acquire this. Uh, and in doing so, they violated the Non-Proliferation Treaty on, on several fronts. These are technical violations, but they're violations nonetheless. And uh, the United States built upon these violations to start to uh, portray Iran as not a state that was in violation to pursue a nuclear energy program that the United States wouldn't allow them to have, but rather a rogue nation seeking a nuclear weapons program. Uh, this is a fundamentally flawed assessment. And at that time, they were not seeking nuclear weapons. They were seeking Iran nuclear has power. Never, Iran has never sought a nuclear weapon. There is literally no evidence whatsoever wow. uh, that, uh, that sustains this, this allegation. And, and the, the thing is, the United States knows this. But the United States has a formula that it's been using in the Middle East uh, I can't say they perfected it with Iraq because uh, we only have to take a look at Iraq today to understand that this was a colossal failure. But it's an approach that has us hype up a, um, a, a threat of, of tremendous significance, uh, tremendous consequence to the United States. In Iraq, it was weapons of mass destruction. Uh, with Iran, it's a nuclear weapons program. And then we create a situation where if Iran doesn't admit having this program, 
we say it exists. And so Iran, of course, failed to admit having a program they didn't have. Um, the United States continued to put sanction after Thank sanction you. after sanction in place. And we came to a situation where uh, either we admitted failure with sanctions or we would have to go to war. And this is the predicament that Barack Obama found himself in about the middle of his term, is that we had taken sanctions and we had taken putting pressure on Iran uh, as far as we could. And Iran just wasn't uh, conceding. In fact, Iran went from, you know, a dozen centrifuges in 2003 to around 12,000 centrifuges. So it's clear that we weren't succeeding in retarding Iran's uh, capability. And this is why Barack Obama came up with the decision to uh, recognize Iran's right to enrich uranium, which they're allowed to do under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And you do that for, for the nuclear fuel cycle, not for the nuclear weapons. Well, it can be done for both. I mean, that's, right. the, you know, that's, that's the catch, is uh, if you, once you perfect the nuclear fuel cycle, uh, you have the ability now to produce a nuclear weapon. At least you have the ability to produce the enriched uranium necessary for a nuclear weapon. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that has to happen for you to have a viable, deliverable nuclear weapon, which Iran has not pursued. But mm. the, the, the hard part, the, 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 the long tent, the long pole in the tent is the, is the uranium. And Iran had this program in place. So while Barack Obama did was recognize that Iran indeed had this capability. Now, the, the, the decision was to allow them to have this capability, but to restrict it in a manner which denied Iran the theoretical ability uh, to break out. And what that means is within a year period of time, if Iran suddenly turned everything on and said, we're going to produce enough uh, enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon with the capability at hand, it would take them one year to do that. And we figured that within that year time, we could galvanize international support and either convince Iran to back down or build up a coalition necessary to um, militarily solve this problem before Iran developed a nuclear bomb. Now, again, this is a completely theoretical uh, hypothetical because Iran didn't have a nuclear weapons program and is not pursuing nuclear weapons. But this is a political problem for the United States. And that's the, the thing about the Iran nuclear agreement. It is purely a domestic political consumption document. It has no real meaning because how do you restrict that which a country is not trying to pursue? It sounds um, to me, Scott, I mean, you and I were having these conversations back in, in 2000, as I recall, three, four, five, I forget what year it was, um, that, you know, you were going into Iraq and you were saying, hey, there's no there's no weapons here. I can I can prove it. I can show you. And and the Bush administration, Dick Cheney in particular, was saying, see, proof that they're hiding it. You can't find it. That's proof that they're hiding it. I mean, it sounds like we're playing the exact same game. It's it's it is the exact same game. And moreover, you know, there, there was a period of time when this deal was being negotiated where people were demanding that Iraq that Iran allow Iraq-type intrusive inspections. Uh, and they said the only way we could be convinced that Iran doesn't have uh, a, a hidden nuclear weapons program is to be able to go anywhere, anytime we wanted, including the most sensitive uh, military sites, uh, the most sensitive political sites. Uh, we've seen this before. This is what the United States and others demanded of Iraq, and Iraq allowed this to happen, thereby giving the United States and other nations the intelligence needed to target their leadership and make an invasion that much more effective. Iran, of course, wasn't going to allow this and hasn't allowed it. There, and, but a lot of people say, that, and Donald Trump included, say this is the fundamental problem of this, um, of this approach, of this, of this deal, is that it doesn't allow these intrusive, anytime, anywhere inspections. Therefore, it's, you know, it's not a good inspection program. This is, this is a flawed argument. The agreement allows unprecedented levels of, of access by highly qualified technical inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency who would be able to detect with 100% certainty any deviation from the agreed-upon framework by Iran. Yeah, you don't no. need to go anywhere. Anytime. No, I, I absolutely understand. So we're talking with Scott Ritter, his new book, Deal Breaker. So, Scott, uh, you know, as, as you well know, Dick Cheney back in, in 2001, before 9-11, was in charge of the Energy, Energy Policy Committee, and he was uh, dividing up the oil fields of Iraq for privatization and sale to various countries and oil companies. Um, the, it, it turns out, it looks like in retrospect, one of the major reasons 
that Bush lied his way into a war in Iraq, in addition to the political benefit that he gained, which he had proclaimed a year before he ran for president in 2000, uh, you know, if he had a chance to invade Iraq, he would do it, and he'd do it in a way that was a big war, not a little war like his daddy did, so he would get reelected. But also that they wanted the oil. So we know that there was, a, you know, at least two big ulterior motives behind the invasion of Iraq that led to the death of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, the displacement of millions, um, this criminal war. What is the, now you have the United States and Israel, basically, the, the two countries, and, and Saudi Arabia, I believe, also, who are hyping this Iranian threat. What is the ulterior motive in this case? Uh, I mean, in a way, it's oil, but it's not gaining control of Iranian oil. It's denying Iran the ability to bring its oil to the market. But why thereby, do that? I mean, is this an extension of the Shia-Sunni battle that, that Saudi Arabia has been engaged in forever? Well, I mean, that's the Saudi perspective. Uh, the American perspective is to keep the price of oil depressed. Remember, we think uh, uh, in, in, in a global scale. Right. It's not just about um, you know restricting Iranian uh, economic capability by denying them the ability to sell oil. It's about depressing the price of oil. So two things occur. One, American uh, fracking uh, becomes affordable. Uh, if the price of oil you know goes above, I don't know what the best, some say sixty dollars. Um, I mean, if it goes below $60, it becomes impossible for uh, American oil companies to, to extract oil from many of these wells that allow us this energy self-sufficiency today. Mm. But if the price of oil goes too high, um, Russia makes a lot of money and becomes you know, economically uh, powerful. And so we need to strike a balance between the oil prices being too low and too high. And the best way to do that is to empower a single entity, in this case, Saudi Arabia, who has swing oil production capacity. They, you know, they pump out around 9 million barrels a day. They have a surge capacity of 11. So they're able to take that surge capacity and manipulate uh, the availability of oil on the global market to control oil prices. So what does this have to do with Iran? Uh, Iran is, has the capability of producing 4 to 6 to 8 million barrels a day. Uh, and therefore, Iran's ability to flood the, uh, the market with its oil uh, restrict Saudi Arabia's ability to control it. So the best uh, way to give Saudi Arabia leverage is to eliminate a major competitor. I see. Because I was thinking, hey, you know, if you want to keep the price down, let let Iran sell their oil. But you don't want to keep it too low. And that's because in Russia, Russia makes money. Then Iran makes money. Right. Well, that's <laughs> if it go, if the price goes up. So, but but right. if it goes but down, it hurts the U.S. frackers. Too low that American then Americans can't uh, pump oil out of uh, West Texas oil fields. Fascinating. So the bottom line of your book here, Deal Breaker by Scott Ritter, forward by Seymour Hirsch, is we should re-engage in the Iranian deal? Look, we don't want a war with Iran, and that's the path we're heading on right now. The best way to avoid a war is to go back to the Iranian nuclear deal, the one that Barack Obama negotiated. Amen. Um, Scott Ritter, his new book, Deal Breaker, Donald Trump and the Unmaking of the Iran Nuclear Agreement. Brilliant stuff. Uh, Scott, great talking with you again. Thanks so much for dropping by today. Oh, thank you very much. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Helping you win the water cooler wars. Tom Hartman here with you, fair and only slightly unbalanced. Welcome back. That was fascinating. And, and Scott Ritter's book uh, in and of itself is fascinating. There's uh, you know, a lot of really, really good stuff there. The Republican Party was uh, going to have, well, not the entire party, the House Committee on Education and Workforce. They were planning to hold a hearing yesterday about how terrible the minimum wage is. And they had this expert witness, uh, Joseph Sabia of San Diego State University, who is going to testify that if you raise the minimum wage, you're going to kill jobs. And then they discovered that he's got this blog, and his blog says things like, and I quote, I humbly propose the right-wingers attach an amendment to every bill that taxes or regulate tobacco or high-fat foods. The right-wing amendment should tax and regulate homosexual acts. First, we have to mount the assault on big gay. And no, I'm not talking about Rosie O'Donnell. We can tax gay nightclubs, websites, personal ads, sexual paraphernalia, and so forth. Talk about a syntax. We can cripple gay-related industries and get them right where we want them. All gay clubs will have to feature huge flashing warning signs like caution entering this nightclub may increase your chance of contracting STDs and dying. I mean, talk about 
insane bigotry. He referred to college-age women as unpaid whores. He said, and I quote, feminist thought has taught young women that equality is achieved by acting like promiscuous sluts. This guy was the expert witness for the Republicans yesterday. And, uh, you know, when the news started pointing out his, uh, uh, shall we say, past, the Republicans uh, basically turned and ran. Yesterday, I talked about Centoya Brown. Reach out to the governor of Tennessee and, and tell him to commute her sentence. She was 16 years old when she shot and killed a man who was essentially raping her. And she was prosecuted for, for murder and got a 51-year sentence. She hadn't even reached the age of consent. She was not a legal adult at the time. She was a child. And she's got a 51-year sentence. Why? Probably because she was black. And this is just, like, so wrong. Holly in Marshall, Missouri. Hey, Mar Holly, what's up? Well, I'm not sure you can help, but uh, here in rural Missouri, in our small uh, county, we have some great candidates, but they have no money. And mm. what happens is every time we want to run someone for office, it winds up being someone who has a lot of money. Holly, you've put your finger on probably the biggest problem or one of the biggest problems in our electoral system right now, which is that it's very hard to be able to to just leave a job and run for office. And it's very hard for, for low-income people to run for office. The solution is public financing of campaigns. Thank you for the call, very well said. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.